This book and our study on Wednesday nights certainly cultivates that in us, and the same will be true, I trust, for tonight. So if you would, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Revelation with me, specifically Revelation chapter 14, if you're counting. Revelation chapter 14. Our goal is to cover the entire chapter tonight, so you can pray while you sit there. I have to say, I was very much tempted this evening to title this sermon two words, two words that make up a familiar phrase perhaps you know of or have heard of in our culture today, two words that that maybe you've seen and read before in some reviews of newly released movies that have been long anticipated perhaps by their loyal and often fanatic fan base as as everyone is scrambling to, to be the first to comment about the latest blockbuster to hit the theaters, there is a particular danger, perhaps you're aware of this, that these two words seek to mitigate in its readers. These two words really serve as a, a warning to potential readers that if they choose to continue reading or listening to such a review, they would likely be exposed to critical information about the new film, usually about some plot twist at the end of the movie that would have the potential of ruining their first time watching experience because they would already know what was going to happen. You have the two words in your mind? (laughs) So what are those two most helpful words that serve to protect the integrity of the moviegoer's first time viewing experience? Say it with me if you know it. Spoiler alert. I heard some other answers in there, but we'll ignore them. Spoiler alert. (laughs) You see, as we come to Revelation 14, if you, if you don't want to find out what happens at the end of the tribulation period, then here is your spoiler alert. Don't read chapter 14. Because under the inspiration of the Spirit, John, in this chapter specifically, is given, we could say, a sneak peek, a, a preview of the end which, by the way, is the official title for tonight's sermon, a preview of the end. And our goal, as I said, is to cover the entirety of this chapter, a chapter that can be divided into three discernible sections, three sections based in the text, if you'll notice, hopefully you're there by now, upon three separate visions that John receives here All introduced the same Greek phrase, which is translated in verse 1. You'll look at it. Then I looked. It's translated in verse 6 a little bit differently. It's the same Greek phrase, though. And I saw. And then again in verse 14. Then I looked. Three sections. Really three previews of the end. And so that is your outline for tonight in case you're taking notes. Do we have the slides, by the way? 
There should be some slides um, pulled up there, I believe. In case you're taking notes, Revelation 14, John sees three previews of the end. You'll see there a preview, first of of Christ's victory, verses 1 through 5. A preview of man's destiny, verses 6 through 13. And a preview of judgment's certainty in 14 through 20. You know, there are some things in life that you can take to the bank. These are three of them. Let's look at them together. First, I want you to notice John is given a preview of Christ's victory. Really, we could call it Christ's, specifically his millennial victory, verses 1 through 5. Notice, first in this preview of Christ's victory, the place of his victory, verse 1. Then I looked, John writes, and behold... The lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And as soon as John is given this new vision, his eyes behold a figure resembling a lamb, a figure who should by now be familiar to us in the book of Revelation. This figure, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just any lamb. He is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29, the the Passover Lamb offered for the sins of his people, says 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. But in our particular book, you remember, we are introduced first to this Lamb back in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, where this Lamb is described as the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic prophecies of a conquering king for God's people. And here, he shows up as such. You know, Back in chapter 5, you may remember, he's the only one who's able to take the scroll out of the Father's hand and to break its seals This lamb will carry out God's prophetic purposes for his creation. In chapter 5, he alone is worthy of worship. He's seen alongside of and even equal to the Father. For to this lamb is ascribed eternal power, riches, wisdom, blessing, honor, glory, and dominion by all the hosts of heaven. Back in chapter 5, you may remember again, he appears there with seven horns and seven eyes. This lamb is both all-powerful and has perfect wisdom and insight. And from the moment we meet him, the first time that John sees him, back in chapter 5, all the way until now, this lamb... Christ himself has been in heaven, in the center of the throne, says chapter 7, verse 17. And he's been there breaking seals and meeting out divine judgment from the throne. But here... In this vision, no longer does John see Christ in heaven. 
standing as if slain, surrounded by holy angels. Now, notice, John sees him where? Standing on Mount Zion, surrounded by the redeemed, his feet firmly planted in the prophetic place of victory. Just imagine that. Where the, the place where God's people throughout redemptive history have been told that, that God will come and he will dwell with them there. The place where it was prophesied he will gather and defeat all of his enemies. In the end, the place where he will establish his earthly kingdom, where he will set up his reign for a thousand years, where he will restore to himself his chosen nation. This is where John sees him. The significance of this location cannot be overstated. You just imagine it is the capital of the millennial kingdom of Christ. It's the center point of salvation history. There's, there's really no reason to or, or need to interpret this as a heavenly Zion, as some have. In fact, all the visions, if you just read through Revelation, John receives of heaven in this book, describe heaven with the throne room of God as the focal point, not some spiritual Zion. Furthermore, the, the, the Mount Zion of Old Testament prophecy always referred to the actual city and location where Jerusalem was built. If you're taking notes, you can just write down Psalm 48. Mount Zion is referred to as the city of our God, his holy mountain, the joy of the whole earth, interestingly enough, the city of the great king. Uh, Isaiah 24, 23 declares to the Lord of hosts, will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Those are, those are actual places and locations, and his glory will be before his elders. This is the literal place where God has determined to carry out his rule and his reign. Even though nations are in an uproar and the kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed one, you remember what God declares in Psalm 2 verse 6, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is where John sees Jesus. And what is most remarkable here, perhaps, is the specificity of this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Think about this. Down to the very location and place of Christ's conquering and ruling the nations upon his return. Think about this and listen to this passage, specifically Zechariah verse four, chapter 14, verse 4. You can write it down and go read it later, but there Zechariah speaks of this very moment witnessed by John when Christ will come back to this very place. As he writes, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, 
which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. This is a literal place, and this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Imagine it. When Christ returns, he will touch down on this mountain. He will stand there victorious. In fact, just two verses earlier in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 14, verse 2, we're told that God will gather all the nations to Jerusalem for their destruction. Listen, just think about this. What an incredible sign of God's sovereign power. He is going to tell his enemies exactly where he's going to defeat them. And there's absolutely nothing that they'll be able to do about it. I mean, this, is, this, this has to be the worst intel leak in the history of warfare. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't need clandestine special ops teams to win this war, to carry out secret missions. He has no need for guerrilla warfare or other tactics and underhanded strategies of deception in order to gain a military advantage. That's not how he's going to win this battle. In the end, Scripture tells us with shocking simplicity that Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives out in the wide open, visible for all to see, including his enemies, and he will gather them there before him, every nation and all of their might. And he will utterly destroy them in a moment. What a contrast if you consider the last time Christ appeared Physically, on top of a mountain in Jerusalem, it was on a hill called Golgotha, where he was crucified. John sees the next time that he comes to a mountain in Jerusalem, it will be here, on the Mount of Olives, Mount Zion, where he will stand, having conquered all of his enemies. That is Sure, it will happen. But notice next, John sees that Christ will not be alone at this place of victory. In this preview of Christ's victory, there will also be a people of victory. Notice the rest of these verses, verse, the second half of verse 1, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. You see, standing with Christ and thus sharing in his millennial reign and victory, John sees the 144,000, a people of victory. John sees this group that we read about first, back in chapter 7, if you remember that far, there are most likely, uh, as we heard from Danny, Jewish converts 
During the time of the tribulation, since we're told back in chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, they consisted of 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, so they are Jewish. And we're also told there that they were sealed by God as his bondservants on their foreheads, chapter 7, verse 3, likely indicating their unique protection and ministry during this period of the tribulation. But here, we find out a bit more information about them. We find out exactly what that seal was. Notice, it consisted of his, that is the lamb's name, the name of his father written on their foreheads. This is is in sharp contrast right out of chapter 13 with those who have given allegiance to the Antichrist and receive the mark of the the name of the beast or the number of his name, chapter 13, verse 17. These belong to God, not the world. These are Christians, Jewish converts in that day. It's hard to know for sure whether these believers are entirely preserved or protected throughout the tribulations so that they meet Christ on Mount Zion, or if they die as martyrs under the reign of the Antichrist and return with Christ to reign during the Millennial Kingdom. The text doesn't tell us. However it is that they get there, they are clearly there with the Lamb at the time of His victory. What little we do know about them is told to us here, though not all of it is easy to interpret either, but notice first of this people of victory, their salvation. We've already talked about this, but notice verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song. For the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. As John hears what first sounds like Niagara Falls in a hurricane. And even though John doesn't identify for us the source of this voice from heaven, if you fast forward, Revelation 19 verse 6 uses almost the exact same phrase to describe the chorus of the redeemed, singing the song of the redeemed. And so here, it's reasonable enough to assume that's whom John hears And it is a song, it's the sound of a song, since John writes that what he heard was not only loud, but it was also melodic, like the sound of harpists playing on their hearts. You see, next time we come here on a Sunday and Kyle and the band are just cranking and it is loud, it's okay. The worship in heaven is loud. And it is harmonious. The fact that it is a singular voice that John hears to begin with in verse 2 simply tells us that whatever is being sung here is being sung in unison by some sort of 
choir, because notice verse 3, John identifies the source as a plurality then. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. So we know the singers aren't the four living creatures or the elders before the throne. Likely this is the song sung by the redeemed. A new song, by the way, reinforces this idea because a new song in Scripture is always the song of the redeemed. It's, it's always sung by those who experience new mercies from God because, because of God's fresh saving work in their lives. And the same is true here. This is the song of the redeemed multitude in heaven purchased by the blood of the Lamb, singing at the top of their lungs in unison to a heavenly audience about their salvation. Christian, if you don't sing now because you have been redeemed, if you're afraid to sing now before men, you will sing one day before the angels. That same song of the redeemed. And John explains, notice in verse 3. He says, no one could learn the song except the 144,000. Now there's something that is amazing. Have you ever thought about the, the fact that There is something that we can do that angels cannot. Moreover, if that's not enough, notice the end of verse 3, John identifies these 144,000 of those explicitly who have been purchased from the earth. And this is now explicitly the language of redemption and salvation. These are men who have been bought by the blood of Christ with whom they now stand. John uses the same language of redemption at the end of verse 4. These have been purchased from among men. But there he adds, as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Beloved, these are the redeemed. They are set apart unto God They are a special group of Jewish believers in that day. And this is evidence of their salvation. But notice, secondly, their service. Verse 4 says, They are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult uh, descriptions to make sense of here, but it seems that these 144,000 will have kept themselves celibate, virgins, literally, giving themselves wholly to God in ministry, just to borrow a term from Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 12, as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. In fact, that very next description of them is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes sort of reinforces this idea, right? They they will be those like Joshua and Caleb of old of whom it was written, they followed the Lord fully. They were willing to go while the rest were not. These 
144,000 will be willing, the text says, to do whatever God asks of them, whatever the cost may be, wherever it may take them, whatever the time, whatever the sacrifice. No doubt this would be, if you just think about this more, all the more difficult if they had wives and children to leg after. You remember even Matthew 24, verse 19, Jesus specifically pronounces woe upon those in these days who will be pregnant and nursing babies. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that this is the meaning here. Their service is that which is unique. They are set apart for this ministry. Notice third, their sanctification. Look at verse 5. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Like their Savior with whom they stand. And that day, like their Savior, he committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth. This group of Christians... It's the direct fulfillment of what God told Zephaniah in Zephaniah chapter 3 when he said, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. What a sight to behold for John, for us. And while I don't, I don't believe that the 144,000 is a, a figurative number representing all believers who have ever come to Christ, I do think that we can consider them as representative of all Christians since first fruits there even in the text can imply there's still more of the harvest to follow. Christian 2 Timothy 2.12 promises that someday you too, we too will also reign with him. Friend, let this picture of Christ, the victorious Christ with his victorious people encourage you, Christ will have his victory. I don't care what the world looks like today. I mean, coming off the heels of chapter 13, nothing could be worse, and yet John is given this preview. It won't end like that. Christ will have his victory. Beloved, you too, if you are in him, if you have been purchased by the blood of the lamb, you too will share in his victory someday, and you will go wherever he goes. John gets another preview. In a second, John sees a preview of not just of Christ's victory, but man's destiny. Man's destiny. Again, there are some things that that are just true, this is one of them. In this preview, in one single vision, John hears 
four announcements from heaven. And the first three come from three separate angels, while the third is a bit unique, as you'll see in a moment. It apparently comes from God and the Spirit himself. And all these announcements have something to do with the eternal destiny of men. And in one sense, you could say the answer is the same for everyone. That is, beloved, everyone will die. You will die someday. I will die someday. Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, that is the end of every man. Of course, the writer of Hebrews, not to be left out as well, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. And while death is indeed the great equalizer and that is the same destiny, in one sense here John receives a vision, a preview. The difference, listen, listen, uh, between those who die In their sins, verses 6 through 12, and those who die in the Lord, verse 13. Notice first the destiny of those who die in their sins. It's sobering. The message here that John hears, John now hears three angelic announcements back to back to back, all connected together, all related to one another, all of which tell us something about those who die in their sins. First, notice, those who die in their sins are characterized by false worship. Look at verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. You see here, as in Revelation 8, verse 13, if you remember, the position of mid-heaven is that unmistakable spot in the sky where everyone can see. You know, when the sun is in mid-heaven and there are no clouds in the sky, you can't get away from it. It's burning heat. That's the idea here. This angel is parked in mid-heaven with this announcement so that all would hear. This is a message that is meant to be heard, not just by John, but by everyone else who sits upon the earth. There will be no excuses in that day. Friend, no one will be able to claim that they didn't have access. That they didn't have exposure to this gospel message. There won't be that excuse. That is John's point here. Notice John calls it here. John calls the message here an eternal gospel. This is the one and only time this word occurs here in the book of Revelation, which is is this gospel which is preached to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. In other words, what John records here 
Think about how this is described. It's the preaching of a gospel that is applicable for all people at all times. Christian, the gospel of God has never changed. There's only one way of salvation. There always has been. There always will be. Perhaps what's most surprising is the content of this gospel. Notice what John says here. The the content of this eternal gospel that John records for us here is verse 7. And he said, this angel, with a loud voice, fear God. And give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. You see, this is similar in language to how Paul and Barnabas spoke of their gospel to the Gentiles during their ministry in Lystra. You could just write down in your notes Acts 14 verse 15. You remember they preached and those in Lystra thought that the gods had come down in these two, Paul and Barnabas, and began to worship them. And they said, no, no, no. Don't worship us. We are also men of the same nature as you. We've simply come, they said, to preach the gospel to you. And listen, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, Paul and Barnabas summarized their message of the gospel in the same way. Don't worship idols. Worship God. Christian, that is what we declare in the gospel message today. When we call people, when we call sinners to put their faith in Christ as their Savior, That is what we're calling them to. You see, the call of the gospel has always been a call to worship the true and living God. And there's only one way to the Father. Through Christ Jesus. That is why we can say here to those who die in their sins, listen, are characterized by false worship. Because in the end, this is the gospel that they reject. In refusing to turn to Christ, they refuse to give God glory. That's the language here. Notice, in refusing to turn to Christ, even Romans 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In refusing to turn to Christ, Romans 1 tells us that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They didn't glorify Him They didn't give God glory, but instead they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And sinners who die in their sins exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. For an image. You see, the gospel of God is about the worship of God. And those who die in their sins have chosen rather to worship idols. They're characterized by false worship. They reject the gospel message. And so John hears in this angelic announcement that the hour of God's judgment on those who persist in this false worship has come. It is here. It is now. Secondly, notice 
how those who die in their sins are also characterized by not just false worship, but failed worldliness. Look at verse 8. And another angel, second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Look, John is explicit here in his language that this second angel's announcement follows, immediately follows the first one, linking the two together. And those, while those who die in their sins, we could say refuse to come and drink from the fountain of living waters, they refuse to come as the Spirit invites at the very end of this book, chapter 22, verse 17, to take the water of life without cost. Those who die in their sins refuse that message. And so here John hears a second angel saying that they will instead drink of the wine of the passion of Babylon's immorality. What an exchange. And they will also share in her doom. That's really what the picture of drinking the same drink is communicating here, right? Just think of the imagery. It's what Jesus meant when he was asked by his disciples that they might sit at his right hand and at his left and share in his glory. Remember what he said to them in Mark 10? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? They wanted to share in his glory. He asked them that they were willing to share first in his experience of suffering. The same idea here of drinking is in this passage, but it's now reversed. All those who drink of Babylon's immorality experience, they share an experience of her idolatry and her sin will also share in her judgment. By the way, this is the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation, and more will come concerning this wicked city's downfall later in chapters 17 and 18. But for now, it's sufficient, perhaps, for us to just note that like the reference to the city of Zion here, Babylon is most likely an actual city where the Antichrist will choose to be his headquarters and capital. From this cultural center, you could say in those days, Satan will carry out his influence and consolidate his power. From this evil city, he will control, as we read in Revelation, all that remains pagan, godless governments of the world, and he will lead them in spiritual adultery. He will legislate and make laws and pass policies encouraging blasphemy and idolatry. And yet John sees here a preview of Babylon's destruction as he hears this second angel calling out words that are borrowed from Isaiah 21 verse 9, fallen, 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 are the first words we hear of this evil city. Christian, this is the failed worldliness of those who will die in their sins. 
Friend, listen to 1 John 2, verse 17. The world, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. The one who does the will of God lives forever. In the end, this world will fail you. It is fallen. Fallen. So don't be duped into loving it. But third, notice those who die in their sins are characterized, perhaps the most devastating of all, by forever wrath. Forever wrath. Verses 9 through 11. Then another angel. A third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest Day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is a scary picture. This is probably, though, one of the clearest places in Scripture that teaches us, listen, of the eternality of God's punishment of the wicked in hell. Have you heard of people who believe otherwise? The language here is unmistakable. And notice how twice this angel emphasizes who exactly will experience this kind of eternal death from God. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, that person, John says, will drink the wine of the wrath of God. You see, this image of God's judgment is very common throughout the the scriptures, you can, you can, again, if you're taking notes, write down just Psalm 75, verse 8. God's wrath is a cup in the hand of the Lord that is well mixed, that the, the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down to its dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17, it is the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling. Habakkuk 2, 16, it is the cup in the Lord's right hand and Matthew 26, verse 39, you remember, it was this cup that Jesus feared the most. It made him tremble. Does it make you tremble? This cup made your Savior tremble so much that he asked the Father to let it pass from him. But beloved, if you're a Christian, aren't you glad that he said, but not my will? It is this cup that because Jesus drank it all for you, that you will never have to drink from if you're in Christ. But notice for all those who die in their sins, here, this wrath of God is without mercy. It's mixed in full strength. It's without escape. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And it's without end. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. This is not a picture of annihilationism. 
This is the forever wrath that those who die in their sins must face. And as if to encourage those Christians who would, would have been tempted perhaps to compromise under persecution, notice verse 12, John adds a comment here, very interesting. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's far worse to die an eternal death at the hands of the Lamb and his holy angels than to die at the hands of the Antichrist. So be faithful. Christian, persevere. And with that, notice how different death how different, how different death bodes for those who die in Christ. In the last announcement of this vision, John hears of the destiny, not of those who die in their sins, but of those who die in the Lord. Notice, just notice verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead. What? <laughs> Blessed, yes, blessed are the dead who die. But the key words, in the Lord from now on. Here instead of an angel, John hears God's very own voice from heaven pronouncing blessing on those who die in Christ. Maybe it's strange for some of our ears to hear the words blessed are those who die, but But like I said, the real game changer is in that modifying prepositional phrase so critical, in the Lord, those who die, not just those who die, but those who die in Christ. Only their death is blessed. Friend, in the Lord, death has no sting, 1 Corinthians 15. In the Lord, death is precious in the sight of God, Psalm 116, verse 15. Remember, in the Lord, death is gain. Philippians 1, verse 21. In the Lord, we are freed from the fear of death, Hebrews 2. In the Lord, death brings to us, ironically, the crown of life. It says Revelation 2, verse 10. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. And notice especially the words of the Spirit that John records here then. Yes, says the Spirit so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. See, the blessing of death for the Christian is described here by John as rest. Love that picture. That's why we can, that's why the Bible can talk about death as though it's just sleep. It's just sleep. But not rest from God's work or good deeds in my understanding here. For notice, the Spirit says that their deeds actually follow them. You know, like the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, implies those who are faithful with a few things in this life, Jesus will put them in charge of many. You ever ever consider that? That there, there will be still work of ministry in heaven. There will be worship. Constant Service of worship, 
But what is this rest here from? Rest from suffering? Rest from persecution? Rest from sin? How sweet will that be? This is John's preview of the destiny of those who die in the Lord, but there's there's one more preview he's given in this passage. Very quickly, third, John receives preview of judgments, finality. Preview of judgments, finality, verses 14 through 20. And here we find two agricultural pictures of the final judgment of God. And I believe both are a reference to judgment. The first picture of the grain harvest pictures the certainty of a final judgment. While the second picture of the grape harvest adds with more specificity the severity of the final judgment for the wicked. And really, much like the rest of the book of Revelation, there is an Old Testament background to this. I think these two pictures are directly pulled from Joel's prophecy. Again, if you're taking notes, just write it down and listen. Joel chapter 3, verse 13, speaking of God's judgment Joel uses the same two pictures, Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. There's the grain harvest. Come tread for the winepress is full. There's the grape harvest. The vats overflow for the wickedness is great. These are two pictures, two parallel pictures of God's impending judgment, his final act. And notice first, in this preview of judgment's finality, John sees the grain harvest and the certainty, and he learns of the certainty of final judgment. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Finality of God's judgment, and here is the certainty of it. At the opening of this vision, John sees, again, a familiar picture to biblical prophecy, the Son of Man coming in the clouds for swift and final judgment. That's the picture. And the the image should sound eerily familiar to you if you know the Old Testament background of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Where Daniel says there, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Jesus himself referred to his own return in this way, in Matthew 24, verse 30, Matthew 26, verse 64. But notice here that John sees Jesus having a golden crown on his head. 
In other words, Jesus' appearance in this vision resembles his victory over his enemies. For there are two words for a crown in the Greek language. This is a stephanos, not a diadem. It is a victor's wreath. One in competition as opposed to the crown of royalty, even though Jesus is obviously king as well. But John chooses his words very carefully. Jesus is the coming conqueror. He will win. He does win. And he does it decisively, finally, swiftly, certainly. Furthermore, notice his appearance as one who's holding a sharp sickle in his hand. This is really speaking of his harvesting work as being quick and efficient. That's the idea of a sharp sickle. In other words, this will not be like cutting with a dull blade. Jesus will not have to make several passes over the earth before everything is cleanly cut. Maybe you've tried to do that before with a you men with a dull razor, yeah, it just makes you cringe, doesn't it? Especially for those of you who have full beards. This is not like that. With one smooth, effortless stroke, Christ will reap the earth and it will be done. Christ's judgment is and will be decisive. It will be swift. No one will escape it. It will be total. It will be final. It will be complete. And notice how the timing of God's final judgment is perfect. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. The hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. You know, harvest time always signifies the culmination and climax of a season, doesn't it? A lot of work put into that moment. But I was reading some this week, and didn't realize how challenging it could be for farmers to know exactly when to put in for the harvest. Ever think about that? You could ruin a year's work just by harvesting at the wrong time. I mean, if you harvest too early, you wait too long, you end up with a lot of waste. That's not the case here. Here, the Son of Man puts in his sickle at exactly and precisely the right moment and just as John heard earlier in verse 7, the hour of God's judgment has come here. The same moment is referred to as the hour to reap. And the reason being because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Ripe for judgment. The word here is actually withered or dried up, which usually, when I mean, you think about that, usually carries with it a negative connotation of judgment. It's the same word actually that Jesus used in Mark chapter 11 uh, of the, the fig tree that he curses, and remember it withers and dries up, is the same word here. So how do we get ripe from it? When referring to a field of standing grain or wheat, how do you tell if it's ripe and ready? The drying out of the head is usually the sign that it's ready for harvest. The time has come. Jesus casts down his sickle. And just like that, 
the earth is harvest. This is the certainty of final judgment. But notice also, lastly, how the grape harvest next pictures the severity of God's final judgment. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them in the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The last picture here is unmistakable. If we weren't sure whether or not the first one was that of God's judgment, This one makes it very, very clear. And this time an angel comes out of the temple because holiness is always the backdrop of God's judgment. And here in in the second picture, another angel is seen by John who is said here to have power over fire, which is probably a reference to the same angel that he saw earlier in chapter 6 and chapter 8 over the altar of incense who gathers, remember, hot coals from that altar and throws them down along with the censer upon the earth as an answer to the prayers of the saints, almost as if it is the cry of the saints that triggers this judgment. Same is true here. And the picture is no longer of harvesting grain, but instead of Grapes that are then thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. The wine press was a common and yet graphic picture of God's wrath. MacArthur reminds us that a wine press consisted of two stone basins connected by a trough. You can just imagine this where grapes would be trampled usually underfoot in the upper basin, and then the juice would spill out and would collect down in the lower one. That's the image that John picks up here. John doesn't tell us who is treading the grapes, but the implication is it's Christ. But in the end, Jesus will, as he promised, All the way back in Genesis 3, he will crush Satan under his feet. He will do it. And he will do the same, listen, for all those who worship idols, who are found in rebellion against their creator. The imagery here is vivid. It almost needs no explaining. It's gut-wrenching, picturing the slaughter that is so horrific and intense and widespread. It's like blood that overflows. It fills the land outside of the city of Jerusalem 
The text says, up to the horse's bridles, four feet tall for a distance of 200 miles. Perhaps, you know, the, 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 the measurement here was 1,600 stadiums. Maybe uh, you do the math, 184 miles approximately covering the Holy Land. All of Palestine washed in blood. It's possible this is literal. If so, the judgment is such a bloodbath that the remains, you just imagine this, of those who are killed, perhaps in the Battle of Armageddon that we'll come to read of later in God's, in John's vision. It is such a slaughter, it can hardly be called a battle. It is such a bloodbath that the blood from it runs down into the valley outside of Jerusalem. Again, four feet tall, 184 miles long, the length of the Holy Land, the full length of Israel. This is the severity of final judgment. John sees these three previews in his vision. A preview of Christ's victory, of man's destiny, and judgment's finality. Those things haven't changed. They remain the same. You know, I, I worked up an alternative outline here in case this still hasn't been clear to us. You could put it this way. Jesus will win. We will die, and our experience of death will be determined by whether we die in our sins or we die in the Lord. And judgment will come. You can take those things to the bank. I trust that you believe them this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we're in some senses overwhelmed by this vision. We can't imagine what John must have felt like having received them, but especially after chapter 13. Oh, what a comfort this must have been. Father, we know that evil must run its course, and yet you are sovereign. You will reign. You will win. And with you, there we will be. What encouragement. Father, for all who are in Christ, those whom you've purchased by your blood, the blood of the Lamb. We pray tonight that if there are any here who have never pondered these truths, that they would know one day with great certainty Jesus will win that they will die and then will come the judgment. Father, use this message to convict them, to draw them to yourself so they might stand with you someday in your kingdom and not experience this judgment which we've just read of. We pray this for your glory. Amen.